to continue today in this series that we've been on. Even last next week will be also the last one of the series, kind of uh, winding down with that. Uh, the tagline: "Speak less, love more." So we've been looking at what it means to proclaim the message of Jesus and the work that He is doing in and through our lives, more than what we say, but how we live. More than what we say, how we live. Our key passage as we've been tracking along in the next slide here from 1 John 3. Um, this has kind of been our key verse here. Children, let us not love with words of speech, but with actions and in truth. And so as John wrote that, obviously he said there's a time to proclaim, there's a time to say, but um, let your love, let the, the, the love of God, let, let, let what is going on in you and the work of Christ that is going on in you be the message that speaks through your life more than what we say about how we live our lives. And Paul would say it like this. He said, guard your speech and your doctrine. In other words, don't let your life contradict what you preach. Jesus said that about the Pharisees. Remember, he's talking to the people and he says, They've got a lot of good things. They've learned the law, so they've learned some good things. He said, but he said, do what they teach you to do. Don't live like they live. Their life is a contradiction. And so, dear children, let us love not with words of speech, but with actions and truth. So today we're going to talk about how to position ourselves to be who God called us to be. How to be in the right position to be used for His glory and His kingdom. And let me go ahead and tell you this, that it will be completely different than what culture teaches us about positioning You will find out, and as you read the gospel, especially if you read the teachings of Christ, this counter-cultural kingdom that he, he, he taught. It's kind of upside down. You want to be great, be a servant. Those kind of teachings that Jesus taught and so he he teaches us counterculture living to be in a different spirit, to operate in a different spirit. Culture teaches us what? Self-promotion. Competition. You know, learning to say the right thing at the right time to get noticed or to impress people. Sometimes it can get into manipulation or controlling the environment to get yourself ahead. Trying to put yourself in the right place at the right time. To look out for yourself that you can make it happen. We want to be noticed. We want to make a difference. And then inherently, uh, there's nothing wrong with wanting to make a difference. I mean, I think it's true. We're, we're all hardwired to want to make a difference. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's how we go about it. And it's our motive. Is it about God or is it about us? And that's a good question for us to ask. What are our, what are our motives when we do what we do? And so the kingdom of God, when we belong to Christ, it is completely different than culture. It's counter to our flesh. It's sometimes counter to our simple nature and some of our instincts. We feel like if I don't do this, that if I don't get myself out there, if I don't somehow manipulate or control or promote myself, then it just won't happen. And we lose this ability to really put our trust and our hope in God. And so, God has called us and He's chosen us for a purpose in mind. But the way we position ourselves for His kingdom and purpose for our lives is going to be opposite of the world. And here's ultimately 
again, what we are called to do. Ultimately, bring Him glory through my life. My chief goal should be to bring glory to the name of Jesus with my life, reflecting Him, that He be seen, that I promote Him instead of myself. Some of you may have heard of Count Zinzendorf. He lived in the 1700s as a German theologian. Um, he was a bishop in, in the Moravian sect of, of the church. And I love one of his quotes. And he, was, he was a great preacher. But he said, My aim is this, to preach the gospel, to die and be forgotten. Isn't that a great quote? In other words... And of course, now I'm quoting him and we remember him. But his aim was that Jesus would be seen. If I'm forgotten, that's okay. I'm not living. I, I don't think he's sitting there when he wrote that going, this is going to be good later on. This is going to be a great tattoo later on. You know, I, I don't think he's thinking that. I think he really meant it because he was a man of prayer and he said, I want to proclaim the gospel. I want Jesus to be seen. I want the life of Christ to be seen in and through me. And then when I'm dying, just let me be forgotten. Let me accomplish what I was called to accomplish while I'm here. And I'm okay. Because ultimately what he's saying is, I might be forgotten by the masses, but if I live that kind of life, I know who will remember me. The most important person that's Jesus. And so today's passage, and the passages that I will look at, they're going to point us to how we position ourselves for His purpose. The key one today is a well-known passage that we're all familiar with. We've heard it in different ways and probably a lot of sermons. But it's from the greatest sermon ever preached. Jesus gave this Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7. through And so we have Him coming right out of the gate that He's He's calling you know, he, he starts his open ministry. He's baptized by John. He goes to the wilderness. He comes and he begins to preach. And these first few words out of his mouth, kind of like the, the beginning of the, the greatest sermon ever preached, but in this entire sermon, he tells us how to live a godly life. But he comes right out of the gate, giving us this portion that we call the Beatitudes. And I think that in some ways he's saying, I'm building a foundation for the rest of the sermon. But get this in your heart, these truths that Jesus spoke as it pertains to us, how we position ourselves for this purpose. So let's look at Matthew 5, starting verse 3. I'm only going to, today, I'm only going to speak in on verse 3 um, about positioning ourselves. I'm going to read this whole thing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be fit. Next one. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When he says over and over, bless, bless the youth, this, bless the, the, the word bless literally means genuine happiness. Genuine happiness. It's a happiness that goes beyond my circumstances. You know, sometimes when things are going our way, we're like, I'm happy. It's a happy day because things are going well for me. That's not what he's talking about here. This is 
in spite of the world around me, in spite of maybe things that are going on in my life, there is a genuine happiness, joy, contentment that is in my spirit. And so, happiness beyond circumstances. And so, Jesus was giving us these eight secrets to true happiness. The world, on the other hand, says in order to be happy, Everything in my, outside my life, my circumstances have to be going well. I kind of have to be perfect, and things are going my way. And the chips are kind of falling in my direction. The problem is that that's not reality. And if you live that way where my circumstances, you will rise and fall and rise and fall, and, and, and ultimately it removes your peace, it removes you know, the, the ability to kind of walk in contentment and joy, you're always rising and falling. And it's not to say that the times we don't have those bad days or weeks or months, you know, that you just going through a season, that this is very difficult. And so it's not about putting on a fake smile, but it's about saying, God, even though I'm going through this, I see you and I know you're there, and I am content in you. And so Jesus going against culture. He gives us these beatitudes of saying that my happiness has nothing to do with what's going on outside of my life. But everything to do with the choices I make inside my life. And so your happiness your character is not determined by your circumstances. Don't let your circumstances define you or dictate you. But let God's peace work on the inside, in spite of maybe circumstances spinning out of control. And so I can choose an attitude, so I can choose to be at peace with God because I belong to Jesus and that place of knowing who I am in Him. And so this part of Jesus' sermon, again, as it comes out of the gate, kind of laying the foundation to strategically position ourselves to be used for His purpose and glory. So I don't really want to cue in on the first group. And I'm actually going to go a little bit out of order. I'll start with humility. The number one is humility. Jesus said this, Blessed or truly happy, genuinely happy are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so doesn't that, you, you hear this kind of dichotomy, right? Almost doesn't, it, happy are the poor in spirit. It almost sounds like you're sitting work together. But again, his kingdom is a counter-cultural kingdom. So what does it mean? He's talking about spiritual poverty. He's saying genuinely happy are those who recognize how spiritually bankrupt they are and how much they need God for every moment of every day. I desperately need God for my heartbeat, for my breath. And he's saying, these are the people that I will bless when they understand their need of me. And they understand that in themselves they are spiritually bankrupt. When you realize that you need God for everything, for everything that you do in life, you position yourself to be used for His glory. Because when we don't realize that, when we get to a place of self-reliance, because again, that's culture, self-reliance, it's about me, it's just about me, you know, picking myself up by the bootstraps, I think Doug had a word a few months ago about that, you know, self-reliance, self-power, it is really a place of denial, 
But when you wake up and you understand, not, and again, it's not groveling um, in a weird kind of, you know, woe is me kind of thing, but it's when you wake up every day and say, God, I desperately need you to, I understand in and of myself, I can't be good enough. I can't be nice enough. I can't be powerful enough. I desperately need you. And I understand my own moral spiritual bankruptcy without you. Because you are blessed and you are genuinely understanding happiness. I can't live without him. Totally dependent on him. And I reject self-reliance and self-destruction. I encourage you today, if you've been in that place of self-reliance, and we go to those places of self-reliance and self-reliance, five times when we're trying to protect ourselves. Maybe we've been hurt, maybe we've gone through this or that, and we, we just say, well, it, you know, it looks like I'm on my own here, and we kind of, you know, put walls around it. Allow God to break down those walls of self-reliance and self-reliance, where He can reach into you and say, come to me. Because the, the opposite of that is pride. Pride is ultimately trying to control things. They're trying to control things that God never intended me for me to control. I used this analogy once, but it's just grabbing the steering wheel of the car or trying to you know, drive our own life and saying, I'll, I'll be in control here. And ultimately, it's a perfect pride because a lot of times God won't force himself because he wants us an act of surrender and he gives us free will. But he will sit in the car with us with his arms crossed and as we bang into things a few times, he's saying, are you ready for me to do this? Let me have control of your life. But a lot of times we're trying to control our lives, our image, control our problems. It's trying to maybe control other people who aren't cooperating with me the way I want them to. It's maybe trying to take control and saying, I'm going to strong hand my way to control my circumstances. And we find that it never works, no matter how hard we try. But rather, it's humbling ourselves, admitting God, I need you, and I want to give you control. And then Jesus, right out of the gate, he's blessed with the force. But when you get that, when you understand that, there's a place to peace. Because ultimately, humility helps me admit that I'm not God. I'm powerless, powerless to control my tendency to sin. We're all poor in spirit, but the happy ones are the ones that realize it. Admit it and depend on God for every moment of every day. And so it's interesting when we've been in control, what's usually attached to that is stress and anxiety, right? Because we can't ultimately be in control. We can't ultimately, we, we take the position of God, it will lead you to stress. How, are, how good are you at being God? Because that ultimately boils down to sin, is when we are making God decisions for our lives and we go, I'll do it, I'll take control. How are you at being God? How has it worked out for you? I can speak for myself. Not very well. Leads me to a place of stress and anxiety. Because again, you're trying to control something that God never intended for you to control. But when I let go of that, and I come to that place with God, I desperately need you today. 
And I begin to adopt that prayer even every morning. God, God please help me to. I need you today. I don't know. You were with me yesterday, but I need you today. I desperately cry out to you, and I need you today. And he helps me again to begin to let go of the stress and anxiety. And you can see First Peter 5, 6, humble yourself under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in due time. You see the promises of humility. You see the promises of being poor in spirit. James 4, 8 says this, God gives strength to the humble, but sets himself against the power and harm. The word sets up against, if you study that word and you break that down in, into the Greek, it says he fights against the crowd. How are you at fighting against God? Not very successful. I don't like your chances. I don't like my chances. But there's a promise that He gives strength to those who are poor in spirit when they realize He gives, he, he, he will lift you up in due time when you are poor in spirit. Peter goes on to say, cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. And there's the time, right? Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Let's look at what Jesus said about humility, about one spirit. Let's get the next passage here. Luke 14. I love this story. When he, Jesus, he noticed the guests took the places of honor at the table. So Jesus was kind of, and he would do this. If you read the Gospels, every once in a while, he would kind of lay back and he's kind of over in the shadows and he's kind of watching things go on. He watches the people. Remember one time he walked into that, 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 that little widow that she just dropped these two copper coins and he recognizes that she's given more than everyone because she's given from her heart. And so he would be back in the shadows watching. This is another time when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table. He told them this parable. So he's like, Here, we have a teachable moment, and Jesus is going to speak up. We're at a banquet, we're at, you know, whatever, a feast, and he noticed people that were rushing up to the head table, and they're, they're kind of, you know, they're trying to jump up there, and I'm going to get a seat at the head table. And Jesus is watching them do this, and he's like, now it's a good time for a, a teachable moment. Verse 8, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat, and humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. Verse 10. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all who, all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So Jesus is saying, in culture, it says, you push yourself up front. You get noticed. You put yourself in the right place at the right time. And Jesus is saying, Lay back and trust me. Because that's ultimately it's realizing I need God for every moment of the day. I need God to help me in my daily life and decisions that I have to make. I, God, I need you. And he's speaking about poor being poor in spirit. The poor in spirit trust God. They don't promote themselves. They don't control situations. They don't push themselves to the front. They take a seat of humility and then God notices. 
to be positioned for God's purpose, to be in the right place, that He can use us. We must be poor in spirit and take at the feet of humility. And then the question is, well, what if I don't get noticed? You will by the one that matters most. It's the place of the table legs that does have that word. No one sits down at a table and again and, and notices you know, the table legs, but how important if you did not have them? And they hold up and, and, and this whole idea of coming to a wedding feast and that, that, uh, the, the, the symbolism and the, the word picture that Jesus has used of, of coming to a, a wedding feast, a, a banqueting table that he invites people to come out of place for you at my table. And I'm setting this out and I'm inviting the lost, the broken to come in. And it could be the church or we have legs to hold up and make a place for people. But it is a place of humility. You, will, you might be hidden, but you will be seen by the one that matters most. The foreign spirit. And humility is this, and I've heard this quote some time ago, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Isn't that good? And if you're tracking along in the one-year Bible, right now it's David getting ready to, he's been anointed as king. And here's the cool thing, is David did not go looking to be king. Where do we find him? Where does God find him? It's in the back part of the desert, hidden away, being faithful in his father's house, tending his feet, and worshiping the Lord. He wasn't out there campaigning to be king. Hey, I would make a great king. If you understood what I, I could be the great, I could be the great. He was faithful. And he was faithful to which God has called him to. And he worshipped God when no one was looking. And he lived a life of worship. And God is the one that said, I have chosen a man who's after my heart. He will be the next king. God notices. Even if someone else doesn't. The second one is this. And, and I'm going to I'm skipping you. Brokenness, because that's going to be number two. Um, I mean, number three, but number two is live under authority. Live under authority. How do we position ourselves for God's purpose? Number one is humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Number two is living under authority. Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek. Now, the word meek is misunderstood. A lot of people, they assume meekness means weakness. And just because it rhymes, doesn't mean it means the same thing. It's actually the opposite. Meekness is strength and power under control. It's a picture, if you will. I mean, they kind of get the idea of it's a, it's a massive warhead. Strong, powerful, but it's under the control of the mass of the person writing it. We understand when you see a when you see a big gigantic horse, and we have some horse, some horse people. I know there's some horse people out there. I, I, I love horses, not that I know a lot about them, but I, there's something about being around them that is pretty majestic. And when you're around a big, gigantic horse, there's something a little fearful, a little intimidating about it. Um, 
I got to ride Isaac Johnson, who, of course, passed away some time ago, but his name was Doom. Not a great horse name. He was a, uh, a Belgian, right? Is that right? Belgian? The one where you could, like, put a car up on its back and you could, like, carry the car. Dude was pretty laid back, but this is a massive horse. You know, it's like a step down from Clydesdale. And you get on that, you know, of course, you know, I, I didn't think I could do the flip, except when I got on Dude, you know, it's like, whoa, this is a big horse. And you're just kind of, you know, Dude, again, that was old and laid back, but it's like Dude did not realize, you know, how strong he was. Because, you know, in a moment, Dude could do some damage to me, right? Because he, he's got a lot of power, he's got a lot of strength, but he's very submissive. And he understands what to do. Well, if you go back in the time when, when they would ride horses in battle, you know, horses, these horses had to be able to take a lot of damage because of all of the chaos that was going around. And horses had to be able to ride and not get freaked out, but go into, you know, warfare situations in the middle of it, taking hits, but trusting the master that is riding its back. And so this is the picture of meekness. It's saying that, you know, we do have some power and some authority in our lives and we're created in the image of God to pass into that. But it's ultimately to say that I am submitted under ultimately the authority of Jesus. That I am meek, that He He can use me how He wants to because I'm submitted to Him. And if you, this idea of submission has gotten a really bad rap in our culture. And submission, we, we, you know, especially when we get into the whole husband-wife roles, and we're not talking about somebody wiping their feet on them. We're not talking about abuse. But we're talking about godly, biblical submission. And here's the thing, it's not a bad thing. Jesus practiced it. Right? Jesus was the ultimate picture of meekness. Did Jesus have a little bit of authority? Or a whole lot? He had all authority given to him. From heaven, he is fully God, fully man. He's equal with the Father and the Spirit. He's on the earth. He has all power and authority. Yet what did he teach us? He taught us meekness in the way he was. He placed himself under the control and authority of the Father. He submitted his will to the Father. And so submission to authority is not a bad thing. Some people say it's a bad thing when you have bad exposure to bad authority. When somebody has abused you, when a boss has gone off on you or like treated you unfairly, when you've had unfair treatment, a lot of times what we can do is associate that that means that all authority is bad. It's not what that means. That means that person made a sinful choice. But authority is actually, and submission is actually, very godly. And it's counterculture. But Jesus himself subjected himself to being submitted. What was the one thing he said in John? He said, I do what I see the Father doing, and I speak only what I hear the Father speak. And then he even said, I don't do anything on my own behalf. When he's praying in the garden, remember when he's grieving about what was about to happen, he's about to go to the cross, and what does he say? Father, if it be 
possible that this cannot be removed. In other words, if there's a plan B, let's do that. Nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. That was an act of submission that was beautiful. And he submitted himself to the Father. Then we have the Holy Spirit. Jesus says the Holy Spirit, he does not testify on his own behalf. But he does what he is commanded. And so we have, even in the Godhead, a beautiful picture of submission to authority, of meekness, power and authority under control. And it is a position that we can take of meekness to be used for God's purposes. It is a way to get God's favor and blessing. When you have meekness, you let go of rebellion, you let go of self-centeredness, it helps you get rid of negative authority issues, and you place your strength under control. Because ultimately what you see as a believer is, I'm under the control of God. I'm under Christ's authority. Romans 13, and this is a convicting passage written by Paul. He says this, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. Who established the authority? Say it out loud. You know you don't want to, but let's say it. All right, I'm not done yet. The authorities that exist have been established by. It makes you uncomfortable to say it, I know. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what? God has what? All right, so this is pretty clear. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. A very convicting passage of Scripture. We should just submit to the government authority. What Paul's saying is God has ordained some of the authorities in this world. We have a government. That government has laws. You break the law, you pay the consequences. We are to obey those laws and place ourselves under the umbrella of authority for our own good. The most important ordained authority that God has placed is the family, family structure. That's why kids, you are told to obey your parents and to stay under God's umbrella of authority and protection for your life. It's for our good. And so although this is a counterculture message, we have authority all over culture, right? Because if you don't have authority structures, you have lawlessness and chaos. Companies have to be run by, you know, there's people that are in charge and they make decisions and then you have people that work down here. It's not, in, in, in God's kingdom, it's not that these guys are more important than these guys. It's they have a different role. And what we've always done is we've attained value. We've attested value to people that are in charge and we say, well, they're the most valuable. No, they're not. They have a different role. But if you don't have something, if you come into a company to have a successful company, but we're going to have no one in charge. We're going to decide kind of all of us do what we feel like doing. What are you going to have? Chaos and not a very successful company. So you have it in, we have teachers and we have students. Students, you understand the authority of the teacher, the umbrella of authority. That's all of this is God's idea. He set it up. The Godhead, remember, this began at the foundation of the earth. All authority is ordained of God. We have church authority, people to stay under. We have work authority. We have work structures. Again, managers, bosses, leaders, and all this idea of uh, the umbrella of authority. And this passage is meekness saying, 
in my own strength, I'm going to submit to those who are in control over me, in leadership over me. And just because if you've had a bad situation doesn't mean that it's all bad. It's a God-ordained thing. Because it's ultimately a test of our hearts, isn't it? Because God uses broken people to be leaders. And that's one of the interesting things of the kingdom of God. You have to submit to someone that maybe you don't even like that much. I've had that. If you had a boss that just, you know, ridiculously, you know, uh, you know, you, you know, unfair, I've been there. Worked for a guy one time, and he was one of the, if not the most miserable people I've ever met in my entire life. Nothing made this guy happy. He was grumpy. He was. And come to find out later on, I mean, he had actually had a tragic end to his life. And, and, but he was, he, there was a lot of just miserable things that happened in his life. And it was a test for my heart. I, I would love to stand before you today and say, I passed that test. But if you talk to my wife, she would say, he's lying to you. Many days I would come home and I would just want to pull my hair out. And I'm like, that guy cannot make him happy. He is Ebenezer Scrooge. I mean, I try to go above and beyond your sweet things, and, and he just kind of stops at you, and I'm just like, well, what do I have to do? And God is always thinking about your heart. It's about your heart. Will you honor him, even if he's not very honorable? And so, depending on your situation, again, you might think, well, you know, my boss is horrible, my teacher, you don't understand, and the mistreatment or unfair. Let me give you context. Paul is writing to who? Who's the, who's the letter to? The Roman Christians. You think that they were understanding some unfair treatment by the Romans? The Romans were the ones who crucified Jesus. These people knew how to intimidate, torture, kill. I mean, they were professional torture people. I mean, they, they were awful. And that's really, really historical, right? You guys are just... They were, they were horrible. They were, they, were they, they, they ruled in cruelty and intimidation and fear. And so these people knew a little bit what it meant about living under the authority of people that they did not like. And so just because someone is not respectable, respect position that they have in their life. And God's promise is this. I will place my protection because ultimately it's him that you're under, not them. And when you trust God, you say, God, you're in control, they are not. That's how I can honor a position, not necessarily the person who's not very honorable. Now, there are times where we have to make a stand. You know, if there's a government, if you're in a government that they're saying it's illegal to worship God, then you have to choose God over that government. If there's somebody that, that would be, never be, you have to submit yourself to abuse. That is not what that means. You know, that a woman or children are being abused in their home. Um, there, there, there's nothing in the Bible that would endorse that behavior to say, well, you should submit to that. That is not what it's talking about. 
So there's a time to stand up and there's a time to speak. There's even a time to disagree with the with authority. Let me get, we're not talking about dictatorship here. But it's having the right spirit, right? It's, it's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were told not to worship God to worship the statue, they weren't going to worship the statue, but they still even had honor to the king. Oh, king, we just, they weren't going to say, you're a big jerk and we're not going to worship your God. Leave me alone. If the king, we worship God alone and we cannot worship the idol. And so there's even a right way to disagree. It's not living under dictatorship or never disagreeing with people that are in authority over you. But there's a, when we are Christians, to be the message, and what I'm getting at is when you're meek, when you go in and you operate in a, in a different spirit. When everyone else is sitting by the you know, water cooler or whatever it is, the lunch table at work, and everybody else is gossiping and ripping down the supervisor donors, you don't get involved in that. You operate in a different spirit. You may not agree um, with what's going on either, but it's how we do it. And then they see the excellence of our lives, and it speaks loud that we are still honorable. And again, when someone wants you to sin, obviously you would not submit that work to reject Christ. Like in some places on the earth, it's just, you know, and, and they even were going through it too. It, it's God, God would not say submit to them if they're, if they're telling you to stop worshiping Jesus. That's where you would draw the line and choosing Jesus over that. And from the Message Bible, uh, this is not up on the screen, but Jesus said this in Mark 10 when the disciples they were arguing about who was the greatest leader. And Jesus says that Jesus got them together to set things down. This is from the Message Bible, how it's written. He said, You deserve how godless rulers throw their weight around. He said, And when people get a little power, how quickly it goes to their head. It's not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That is what the Son of Man has done, speaking of himself. He came to serve, not to be served. And then to give his life in exchange for many who are called hostage. And so we are be, we're called to be meek, to live under authority, godly authority, ultimately being under the authority of God, saying, He's ordained it. He's ordained it. And that's why God, if I have a bad boss, if I have a bad authority, and, and, and it's just a hard working environment, God, you're teaching me something here. Help me to have the right attitude. Help me to have the right spirit. And to live in a right way before you. And again, people see how we're living with an excellent spirit. The last one is this broken, and so I'm going to finish with this one. Bless God, those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus said in verse 4. This is really one of those events. Truly happy are those who start a sad, in the sense of, right? And again, that's not really what it's getting at. It seems contradictory. Jesus isn't saying, you know, you're blessed and happy if you go walk around being sad and depressed. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. Blessed are those who mourn. It's like being born spirit, realizing and admitting my brokenness so that His power and His grace and His mercy can be revealed in me. Because this realization also reveals my worship. My worship shows the world what He's done for me. 
my worship reveals to the world what He's done for me. I'm going to look at, there's a passage of Scripture that grips my heart, and I've been meditating on this for some time. I want you to look at this as it unfolds as we talk about what it means to, to uh, mourn, but to live in a worshipful way before the Lord. That our worship points to our lives. Let's go to the first slide. We're just going to crack along. So it's kind of a lengthy reading, and then we'll talk about it. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So this woman has a reputation as a sinner. She's broken. Everybody in the community kind of knows what kind of woman she is. Kind of got that reputation. She hears that Jesus is there. She goes. So she came in there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed 500 denarii, denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. Remember that, neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You judge correctly, Jesus said. Verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not go. Then he said, Turn to the woman and said, Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss with this woman from the time I entered this not stopped kissing my feet. You do not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. And for love, great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves her. As for great love has shown. What does your love show? This woman is a picture of blessed are those who mourn. Happy are the broken that realize their brokenness. Do you see the contrast that's playing out here in the story? This lady who has lived a sinful life, what is the deal? She realizes it, right? There's a realization of her life. She's grasping at the pricelessness of forgiveness. She's grasping the pricelessness of forgiveness. That this jar of perfume, probably her most valuable possession, we are told a equivalent to a year's wages. So it's kind of what she's sitting on is her savings for, for the rest of her life. And she understands of what she's been forgiven and it's nothing to her to pop it open and begin to pour it over Jesus' feet. Saying, compared 
to the forgiveness and the cleansing that I am receiving, the understanding, the love that has been shown to me through this man, it is nothing for me to crack open the thing and pull it out before him. She's weeping. Somewhat tears of joy, even. I don't know about you, but when you read this, this is an uncomfortable setting. This would have been very provocative for that day. It would have been, it'd be really strange nowadays. If somebody was just sitting up on the stage here and there was a lady that walked in and she began to be weeping and wiping this man's feet with her hair and her tears, it would make all of us a little bit uncomfortable, wouldn't it? In that day, you had a woman, you know, and again, the, the, the whole situation with, you know, you didn't do that kind of, you, you know, many women didn't really, they didn't even shake hands in that day, much less what she was doing of recognizing who she is and leaping to the joy, understanding forgiveness, pouring out her inheritance on him. What she's saying is there's nothing more valuable than the freedom that comes to Jesus. And here's the context. Here's the religious response. You know, this guy's, you know, he's invited Jesus to his home. He's and, and, and he's thinking to himself, he's a church person. Is, is he really, he's a prophet. He, he's really a kind of woman. He wouldn't be letting her do that. So this religious response and so Jesus gives this parable. He said, you know, one person, you have two people. One owes 500 denarii, and then the other one, 50 denarii. If you understand something, he is not comparing sins. If you've ever read that, just to me, sometimes it's like, because he's like, well, her sin's greater than their sin. That's not what Jesus is saying. If you look a little deeper, here's what he's saying. How do I know this? Verse 41, he says, they both had a debt, but neither of them could pay that. They both have a debt that they cannot pay back. Folks, we're born into a world of sin. We have a debt that we cannot pay back. And the religious response is, they, the religious response, Jesus is even confronting him on how you compare things. Right? And so Jesus is confronting this situation saying, because what he's thinking is, he's really a sinner. Me, not so bad. And so Jesus is confronting that, where the religious spirit compares. And we have the category of big sins. You know, murder, sexual sins, this kind of stuff that's really out there and people can see it. More like, whoa, now those people... But over here, I might be greedy. I might be having lustful thoughts. I might be lying or manipulating or controlling. And we think, well, that's not that bad. Especially compared to them. And so Jesus is saying something in this story. He's not comparing the sins of saying one is worse. Because he said, you all, they both had a debt they could not pay back. It doesn't matter whether you think that you're basically good compared to others or you think you're not that bad. 
What he's saying is we all have a debt we cannot pay back. And blessed are the people that realize that. Because her act of worship, this uncomfortable thing, but it's actually a beautiful act of worship, it is a realization of the cross. And it's a realization that I had a debt that I could not pay back. And I realized that He has paid it for me. And it leads me to wisdom. It's easy for us to get religious. We've been living for the Lord a long time. And we can come in here and let me, let me challenge you a little bit because we can come in here and we can sometimes forget the cross. So we take, we take the cross for granted. We take the sacrifice of Jesus for granted. And we can just sit there and go, oh, whatever. It's just another Sunday. We are coming in to worship the King of the Ages who has paid a debt that we cannot pay. Blessed are those who realize it. I don't want to lose the awe and the wonder of what Jesus has done for me. I want to be like this lady at least had that heartbeat every day to say, God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for salvation. Without that, I have no chance. She realizes it. And the religious spirit says, ah, not that bad. Because this is an act of worship. Extravagant worship hitting in my heart. And if you ever seen people, you know, when they they're singing, you know, they can be singing songs or whatever, and you just see people, and you see something deep in them that they, there's a realization of what they've done for and I will exalt them, I will worship them. And I can sit down and cross my arms and I can care less and what time is lunch and get me out of here. This, this is an opportunity for me to worship the one who has paid the death and I could not pay. And I will give my heart to the day. I will extravagantly worship him. It's easy for us to trust you all the time. I shared this story some time ago, but it was a convicting story about me judging somebody on the outside. I went to this retreat, and there was a man there it's the early 90s, and uh, he had earrings, and he had crosses and earrings, and he's a rough-looking character, and as much as I would like to say that, you know, you just see him, and there's kind of these judgments that you make, you know, wonder what his story is, and he seems like a rough guy, and, but I noticed that when we were in the settings, because sometimes they would do, you know, this retreat, and, and they'd have little worship times, and he would always be like, you see him you know, responding to God in some way. You know, some of these singing about the cross, and you just see him get on his knees and just like this, and tears rolling down his face, and just, you know, rough looking guy, and he's just worshiping God, and you're wondering what his story is. Just responding to the Lord. And he didn't say much to anyone. I mean, he was kind of to himself, but at the very end, they had this time where they just went around and they said, you know, tell us about what God has done in your life or whatever. Share your story. And he said, I'd like to share it. And we were all like, wonder what's getting ready to happen. He said, live the life of making horrible decisions. Had a rough childhood, rough life. Got into legal trouble. I was in prison. So I've been out of prison for about a year, and he said, I 
done the religious stuff before, you know, it's like, well, you know, you just kind of want God to get you out of trouble, so you kind of, you know, make things right with God. I just get right back in. He says, when I got out this time, he said, it was, it was, I was surrendered to Christ completely. I gave him my heart, and I said, from, from today forward, I'm living for you. He said, some people see my earrings and they think, whatever, you know, and, and then they read the scripture from the Old Testament. I mean, this guy is like whipping out passages of scripture in my head, you know, that was it. Um, he said, back in the Old Testament days, when somebody wanted to become or belong to their master forever, remember they would put an awl in their ear, they would get into the doorway, and they would basically, like, talk like gladiator style, get on the earring, you know, just boom, you know, and, and what it would do is they, it was a, it was a symbol of the master saying, I belong to this master forever. And he said, I've been chained to so many things. He said that these earrings were all in my ear to say, I belong to Jesus forever. And his mark is on me forever. And I tell you, conviction has to move like a wave through people because we all kind of made that judgment of this guy. And, and then he just begins to just. Again, shed tears talking about what Jesus means to him. Blessed are the broken, especially when they realize it. And it's out of the worship of God. Thank you for what you've done. I want to remember that every day and let it turn into extravagant worship. Jesus, we love you today. We honor you. And what I want to pray, God, that each one of us would position ourselves to be used for the purposes of your glory. And I think what a fitting way to close today is just to receive communion together, to remember the sacrifice of Jesus in a place of worship. Again, don't let this moment, maybe you've taken communion a thousand times. Don't lose the significance of it. We're told to receive communion, to remember His sacrifice. Let it be an act of worship. So in a moment, we're going to bring the house lights down. I'll let you uh, receive communion. I'm going to pray over it. This side, you will receive the elements over here. You can just walk down the aisle. This side, you can come down and receive these elements. And you can take them as you feel led, you can go back to your seat, you can stay quiet with the Lord if you need to go, feel free to go after that, um, but I just want to close this, we'll put the lights down and just take the fellowship part out into the foyer and, uh, and, and just let this the place be uh, with the David if you could have uh, some music ready to go but on the night Jesus was betrayed, Paul seems to tell you in 1 Corinthians 11 and he's, he's saying Jesus instituted the Passover and he was talking about his death and his sacrifice for us. And Paul said, this would be something as believers we need to do and to remember, to proclaim his death, to remember his death until he returns. And so when we, as believers, we still do this, we're here 2,000 years later, when we take this, we're doing something that Jesus instituted, Paul said that we should do, but ultimately it's to, it's to point us to the sacrifice of Jesus. And again, no matter how many times you've done this, let it be a moment where it brings you to the awe and wonder of Jesus again, the value of his death. That he paid a debt that we could not pay.
we do have open community here. Um, we don't we don't believe you have to be a member of our church. We do ask that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of your life before you take communion, that you're a believer in Christ. But with that said, that no one should ever be under any obligation to receive communion if you don't want to. So that's just between you and the Lord. So Paul says this on the night that Jesus was before. He received from Jesus and he passed on to us. He took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It will be broken for you. And Jesus was tortured and beaten. And he took our sins upon himself. He bore our sins and our shame and our sorrow. And he broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat this bread, remember me. And then he took the, the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant between God and people. Before Jesus, we were under the, the people were under the old covenant. And Jesus said, "It's a new covenant, it's a new covenant of grace." That as often as you drink it, remember the blood that was shed for you. That from the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus. Now, as often as you drink it, remember me. Remember me, proclaiming His death until He returns. God, we love you, Jesus. Thank you for your sacrifice. Lord, I pray that we, all of us, that in a new way we would position ourselves, even like that woman, to be in awe and wonder of you, to worship you, to give you our hearts. Lord, even if we come here corporately week in, week out, God, that we wouldn't just get into religious ritual. We just wouldn't get into religious rut that we come in here and we kind of go through our motions and then we leave. But God, we would come in here with expectation and to worship you and to remember that you paid a debt we could not pay. And because of that, we have eternal life. Lord, as we take this communion today, God, I pray, Lord, in a new way that you would help us to remember you and to love you even deeper. That we would be poor in spirit, realizing our need of you. That, God, we would be, if we live under your authority, we would be broken so that we can be truly happy. God, we love you and we honor you.